second talk in our series that I've called Gospel Driven Guidance, Discovering God's Plan for Your Life. Uh, in the first talk, we reflected on God's will for all things. Uh, in this talk, you'll see from the handout there, I want us to think about God's word to us. Uh, hopefully you do have the handout in front of you. It's got a whole bunch of really helpful notes, some blanks for you to fill in, some other quotes. So do make sure, even if you need to, that you get this in front of you. What we saw in the first talk was that God's will is described in two different ways in the New Testament. It talks about his sovereign will, what God says must happen, and God's moral will, that is, how God wants us to live, uh, which sadly some of us ignore. And I tried to reflect on the fact that God does not have a detailed and discoverable plan for your life, that bullseye approach, which I think is deeply unhelpful for Christians. Well, let me leave it the big idea right up front today, and you'll see it's there for you on your handout, the blanks for you to fill in. Here's what I want to say, the big idea. God can speak directly to us, but he promises to do so in his word. There are the blanks for you to fill in. God can speak directly to us, but he promises to do so in his word. Now, I understand there are a variety of reasons why we would love it if God spoke directly to us. Uh, some of those reasons are good. Uh, others less so. The best case, of course, is that, well, we really want to live a life that's worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. That's the passage there from Colossians 1 that we reflected on last week. Uh, we really want to do that, so wouldn't it be great if God just told us directly what it is that we should do that would enable us to achieve that goal? Of course, the less good reason why we want God to speak to us directly is, um, and let me put it this way, it would be a lot easier than having to read the whole Bible cover to cover. Who he hasn't secretly thought that at times. And what's more, if God spoke directly to us, then we wouldn't have to explain our actions to others, would we? Not if God told us. Uh, now, you'll see there's a quote there uh, and a picture. Now, I know it's a little bit easy, it's a little bit risky commenting on US politics, and I'm not, not intending to offer any judgment there, but I do want to offer you a quote from a former president of the United States. Listen to what he says. This is George W. Bush. God would tell me, George, go and fight those terrorists in Afghanistan. And I did. And then God would tell me, George, go and end the tyranny in Iraq. And I did. And now again, I feel God's words coming to me. Go get the Palestinians their state, get the Israelis their security, and get peace in the Middle East. And by God, I'm going to do it. Now, as I said, I'm not really trying to comment on US politics. But it's just one example, I think, at one level that's commendable. I admire his desire to want to follow God's leading. But the way in which it's framed does kind of imply that he can't be questioned. And that's an idea we'll return to later. The big idea of this talk is that God can speak directly to us, but he promises to do so in his word. And that's, of course, the reason why 2 Timothy 3 is so important to us. Printed there on your handout, these famous words... Paul, the older pastor writing to Timothy, his younger protege, Paul says, verse 14, As for you, continue what you've learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And a little diagram underneath that tries to explain what Paul is saying here saying that the way to know God's will is first and foremost through knowing God's word. 
And of course, the way in which we understand God's word is a function of tradition, what those before us have thought of our experience, that is of how we felt it in our lives, even of reason, how we think about such things, and all of which are important. But in the end, all of those experience, reason, tradition, they must be interpreted against and under the constant and unchanging word of God. I mentioned before, uh, previously, that I work with students. Uh, the student group that I work with, the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students, AFES, its very first article of faith, printed there for you on your handout, we believe in the divine inspiration and infallibility of Holy Scripture as originally given, and, here's the key, its supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. Scripture's supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. Well, if that's the big idea... Turn to the second page, the right-hand side of the handout, in fact, and let's look at some of the questions that it raises. Firstly, doesn't God speak directly to people in the Bible? Doesn't God speak directly to people in the Bible at times? Fair question. Let me try and say a few things about that. Firstly, uh, three comments in particular. Firstly, most of the examples, particularly in the Old Testament, of where God speaks directly to his people, they're not particularly commendable. Uh, now, at one level, most of the Bible wasn't written back then, so there was no other way for God to communicate with his people other than by speaking directly to them, often through prophets. But the thing is that on the occasions when God did speak directly to them, well, firstly, it was usually unrequested. Uh, it wasn't in response to them asking God to speak. In fact, God had to speak to them, apparently because they weren't listening. So if you take, for example, Moses, when God approaches him from the not-burning bush, or take particularly Elijah. Often Christians talk about the still small voice that came to Elijah when he was in the cave. Don't forget, Elijah was running away from God at that point. That's why he was in the cave. In a sense, God had to reach out to him because he wasn't listening. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, even when the Old Testament people of God ask God for direct guidance or for a sign... What they usually do next is not very commendable. They're not good role models to imitate. Now, the best example, I think, is that of Gideon. Uh, that's the reason why we had that very long reading from Judges chapter 6 and the famous incident of Gideon laying out a fleece so that God might guide him and directing God might speak to him. The reason the whole passage was read was so that you could notice a few things about it. Firstly, when the first sign comes to Gideon about what he's meant to do from God, that is, God accepts his offering, it doesn't actually cure Gideon's doubts in any way. And do you remember? He does what God says, but he tears down the idol overnight because he's afraid. He's not really confident in God at that point. He doesn't want anyone else to know. And then when God comes to him again and says, I want you to do this, uh, Gideon then asks for the second sign, and this is the famous incident of uh, putting out the wet fleece over, or the fleece overnight and seeing if it will come out wet in the morning when everything else is dry. Of course, the problem is that doesn't cure his doubts either. Now, remember that phrase, please don't be angry with me, God, because he then asks for the fleece to be dry and everything else to be wet the following day, just to be sure. In fact, and this is the thing about Gideon that is very rarely taught in Sunday school, it all ends terribly by the end. Look at the passage I printed there for you on Judges 8, verse 27. This is at the end of Gideon's life. We're told that 
Uh, Gideon, he asked the Israelites to bring gold to him as a kind of farewell present. So what does he do? He makes the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town, and all Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Uh, the ephod was a kind of decision-making gar garment, a thing that a priest put on before they asked God for guidance. And of course, anything being made out of gold, remember the golden calf, this is not going to end well. Actually, I think what Gideon teaches us is not that we should lay out a fleece when it comes to making decisions. What Gideon teaches us is that if you lay out a fleece, you will be addicted to fleeces. You'll be addicted to fleece laying as the way in which you try to make decisions in your life. Of course, the real tragedy of that is that I think you become even less certain that you know God's will and that you are living a life worthy of the Lord that pleases him in every way. And so my third comment about does God speak directly to people in the Bible? What, what should we make of that? Well, my third and final comment is that those are Old Testament examples. The New Testament isn't much better either. Uh, even the most famous example of God's direct intervention, of God speaking directly to his people, uh, that was the passage from Acts 1 that we had read of Matthias being chosen as the new 12th apostle by the casting of lots, uh, kind of like, um, you know, tossing a coin. Even that approach is no better. I say that because the practice of choosing Matthias by casting lots, it is never repeated again in the, in the book of Acts. And in particular, it's not used as the method of discerning God's will when it comes to very significant decisions. So, for example, the choosing of the deacons in chapter 6, or the deliberations of the Jerusalem council over circumcision, or when Paul splits with Barnabas over John Mark. They don't cast lots at that point to try and discern what it means to live a life that's pleasing of the Lord. What I think Acts 1 teaches us, and here's the blanks for you to fill in, Acts 1 is descriptive, not prescriptive. Acts 1 is descriptive, that is, what God did at a particular moment in salvation history in very extreme circumstances, you know, trying to replace Judas. That doesn't happen every day. It's descriptive, what God did. It's not prescriptive. It's not what God promises he will normally do. Because though God could speak directly to us in any situation, he promises he will do so in his word. Now we're going to have a little bit more to say about the role of the Holy Spirit and what he does in our lives in talk three. But for now... Can I say that when the Holy Spirit intervenes, he's usually unrequested. Think, for example, of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip didn't even know about the Ethiopian eunuch. He was just, you know, going along in his chariot. Uh, he was just somewhere else while the eunuch was going along in his chariot. It's not only unrequested, the Holy Spirit's intervention is sadly ignored. So think, for example, of Agabus's prophecy to Paul that if he goes to Jerusalem, he will die there. Paul says, yeah, I know. I intend to. I'm open for that. Well, second issue raised by the fact that God can speak directly to us, but he promises to do so in his word, is then point two. How do I get to be wise for salvation? That's the phrase from 2 Timothy 3. How do I get to be wise for salvation? Because to pick up on this... Uh, 
contrast I've been trying to draw in this series, guidance says, God, tell me exactly what I should do in this situation. Gospel-driven guidance says, God, remind me of the sufficiency of your word. God, remind me of the sufficiency of your word. Gospel-driven guidance says, God, remind me of what you have already told me because you've told me more than enough. To put it slightly differently, the 66 books of the Bible are all that we need to know how to live a life worthy of the Lord that pleases him in every way. Those 66 books, that's all that we need. We don't need any more and we don't need any less. Uh, the no more, well, can we be a bit cheeky here? Do you really want more of the Bible when most of us haven't even read it in entirety, what we've already got? But equally, no less. Never ignore any part of it, not if it's God's word to us. Seems to me, and I hear this sometimes, sometimes Christians complaining, you know, God hasn't spoken to me as if, you know, God's giving me the silent treatment. Don't think we can really say that. If he's gone to the effort of putting 66 books together, particularly if we haven't bothered to read them all first. Well, two implications then of how we get to be wise for salvation by reading God's word, what I've called the sufficiency of scripture, or what we saw earlier from the AFES doctrinal basis, the supreme authority of scripture in all matters of faith and conduct. Two implications, printed therefore in your handout. Firstly, should I wait for God's leading? Should I wait for God's leading? I want to say something about this because this is really important. Um, is it right for us to ask God to guide us and direct us, to pray to God to guide us and direct us, and to wait until we sense that God might be leading us in a particular direction? Well, I want to say absolutely. It's right to pray that prayer. And it's right, especially for evangelicals who, as a whole, we are far too activist beforehand and quick to self-justify afterwards. It is right for us to pause and to pray and to ask God, what would you have me do rather than just rush off to whatever I want? But my question is, how do you imagine that God will speak to you when he does? Do you think he speaks through how you feel about a situation? Because if you do, can I just point out, our feelings are so fickle, so malleable. Or instead, do you think that God will speak to us as we recall his eternal and unchanging promises set out in such incredible and vivid detail in his word? You know, we live in a world that's constantly bombarding us with anti-God messages. I don't need to spell them all out for you. You know what they are. But it seems to me that if we live in a world that's constantly bombarding us with anti-God messages, it seems to me that must affect our instinctive feelings and reactions. It must condition us to feel a particular way about a situation. It must give us a certain set of default tendencies. So that in the end... If you are driven only by what springs to mind, well, I think there's every chance you will be led away from God, not towards him. 
and that's what the world around wants us to do. In the end, what springs to mind is what you live and breathe and inwardly digest. What I'm appealing for here is a systematic reading and more than that, a memorization of scripture so that in any situation we find ourselves in, that's the first thing that comes to mind. And that's the final word that we dwell upon. If that's the case, here are two implications. Print it there on your handout. Firstly, let me say something about the, what I've called the open and point method for decision making. Now, what I'm talking about here is, you know, this, uh, I'm sure we've all done it at some point. You're in a tricky situation. You want to know what God's saying to you. So you grab your Bible and you open it up and you, you, know, you point, and, point and choose. And whatever it says, that's what you do. Can I say that, of course, God could speak to you in that situation? And there are many examples of where he does. But it is basically casting lots or laying out a fleece, which, of course, can work. But here's my perspective. Why would you leave it to chance? Quite literally, why would you leave it to chance? The best way to make decisions is to read the Bible systematically and methodically. The best type of devotional material, in fact, is the devotional material that takes you through the whole Bible. Now, don't get me wrong. I think if you have a daily devotion that just gives you one verse a day and some reflections on it, well, quite frankly, that's better than nothing. That's better than the anti-God messages that the world around us will bombard you with. But it's not as good as reading the Bible from cover to cover, year after year, that you might keep hearing God speak to you in entirety. If I can draw the contrast, why would you scavenge amongst the crumbs? That's what just picking one verse at random is. Why would you scavenge amongst the crumbs when there is a whole smorgasbord, a buffet in the 66 books of the Bible just waiting to be devoured? Second implication then, again on your handout, uh, I want to talk about a different, ask if we need a different vocabulary when it comes to us waiting for God's leading and guidance. Here's what I mean. Sometimes, uh, like in that somewhat, uh, you know, disturbing quote from George W. Bush at the start, sometimes I hear Christians say, God told me this. Don't mishear me, I'm not doubting that perhaps God has done that. After all, he can speak directly to his people. He's the Lord of the universe. He can do whatever he wants. But when someone says to me, God told me to do this, it kind of puts that person beyond reproach, beyond any possibility that I might question them or object or hold them to account. How can I, if God has told them? Instead, I wonder if the way in which we describe our decisions and choices when talking with others is not to say, God told me, but rather something like, I wonder if I've been led to this. I wonder if God is pointing me in this direction. As an aside, can I say that in this whole area of waiting for God's leading, it's like the difficulty or danger in wanting inner peace when it comes to making decisions. 
again, often I hear Christians say something like this, that is, they don't feel at peace with the decision, so therefore they won't act until they feel at peace, and therefore they'll take it as God's sign that they are doing his will at that point. Once again, don't mishear me, inner peace is a good thing. Think, for example, of Philippians 4 and the peace of God that transcends all understanding. It's a lovely gift from God. And sometimes he gives it to us, which is just so wonderful. So by all means, pray, God, help me to have a sense of peace about this decision. But can I say, sometimes you don't get inner peace? If there are two really bad options that lie before you and you have to pick one, you might never be at peace about that. In fact, often the peace that we crave only comes after we've made the decision, which means it's not a very good tool for guidance. Well, second implication there uh, about how we get to be wise for salvation. Uh, what's the place of wise counsel then? What's the place of wise counsel? If all this is about God speaking to us through his word and us just reading his word, then what's the point of wise counsel? What's the point of human wisdom as we try and reflect on these things? Well, once again, uh, you'll see there from Acts 17, I am constantly urging us to be like the Bereans, to not be dependent on anybody else. And that's the great gift of scripture. Anybody can read it particularly in our context. So Acts 17, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Isn't this extraordinary? Uh, Paul's just been to Thessalonica and he's had a mission there and then he's gone to Berea. And what we've been told is that in Berea, the reception he got indicates a greater honour being given to those who've received him because unlike the Thessalonians, the Bereans made a point of testing what Paul said against the scriptures. Now, isn't that extraordinary? Paul, an apostle, the greatest church planter seen of all time, an apostle to the Gentiles, chosen personally by Jesus, still they test his words against scripture, and for that they commended. Now, my point, you can tell where I'm going, this is, we must always test what others say to us against the word of God, even from your pastor. I realise this is a challenge. Uh, this is a challenge for Asians in particular, who are generally very respectful of authority, actually too much so, I think, at times. Uh, I'm constantly being greeted by international students uh, who call me Pastor Jeff. And I have said, don't call me Pastor Jeff, just call me Jeff. The sad thing is that sometimes those international students are so dependent on their pastor's advice, they're so dependent on wise counsel, they cannot make decisions on their own. They don't trust themselves that God will speak to them through his word. Of course, the opposite extreme is equally um, dangerous. Um, here's where I want to talk about, um, and I put myself in this category because I'm not particularly Asian. You can tell that from the way in which I speak and the way I sound. Most Anglos, uh, it seems to me, we're deeply anti-authoritarian, something of the convict heritage, of course. We're generally unwilling to listen to anybody at all. So actually, um, when a local student says to me, Father Jeff or Reverend Jeff, as opposed to the international who calls me Pastor Jeff, well, actually, I know they're taking the mickey out of me. I usually, just, usually say something like, yeah, use the title, but have a bit of reverence in the Reverend Jeff if you're going to use it. To those in that situation, supreme authority means there are other voices we should listen to 
But the point in the end is that it's God's word that sits over everything and shapes how we are to live. Now, the implication then is that the wisest counsel actually is biblical wisdom. The wisest counsel is biblical wisdom. And I guess to make this point, I want to urge us to seek not so much human wisdom, but the wisdom of Scripture. I was thinking about this uh, recently. I was thinking about Solomon, King Solomon. Solomon, who you probably know was the wisest of teachers. It's why we talk about the wisdom of Solomon as being something highly commendable. He's the one whom God gave unparalleled wisdom through that dream. In response, we're told uh, he gathered and spoke nearly 3,000 proverbs. 3,000. Many of which were so good they recorded for us in the Bible. People came from all over the known world just to listen to Solomon's incredible wisdom. And yet, as you also know, Solomon finished his life by turning away from God. In fact, he turned to worship other gods. When I was thinking about that, I went and painstakingly checked. There is no mention in 1 and 2 Kings or in 1 or 2 Chronicles of Solomon ever reading the book of the law either for himself or out aloud to the people. No mention. Uh, and the contrast, of course, is with Josiah, the boy king, who discovers the book of the law in 2 Kings 23. And what he does is that he reads it to the people, recognising that it's God's word, first and foremost, that tells us how to live a life that's worthy of him and pleases him in every way. Well, let me finish then with a final thought. And it's point through there, it's a bit cheeky. Here's my final thought. It's not about you. There's an image there at the bottom of your handout. It's referring to what's called your personalised Bible, as unique as you. I discovered this a few years ago uh, in my idle searches on the internet. What the personalised Bible enables you to do is... Replace every time the word you appears in the Bible with your own personal name. In fact, if you go to the website, you'll see that you can try it out on some sample verses. So, for example, Psalm 23, the personalised Bible says this, The Lord is Jeff's shepherd. Jeff shall lack nothing. He makes Jeff lie down in green pastures. He leads Jeff beside the still waters. He restores Jeff's soul. Now, at one level, I was deeply fascinated by this. Did you know you can even get a couple's version of this? You can put two names in there. And I thought about buying one, and then I realised it cost US $130 plus postage and handling, so I figured it wasn't worth it for the gag. Why do I draw your attention to this? Well, most of what God says in his word, he says to all of us. Most of what God says in his word, he says to all of us. He says to everyone. And he says to everyone across time and space. And by necessity, therefore, it means that most of God's word will have general application rather than specific detail. Most of God's word will have general application, the development of character and conviction, which is utterly universal. It's common to all people everywhere across time and space. It'll have much more of general application, 
than specifically detailed instructions for specific circumstances. It's mostly about character and conviction rather than the specific conduct in any given circumstance. But in the end, do you know the biggest problem with the personalised Bible? Well, it's that the Bible is first and foremost not even about us as opposed to you. The personal promise Bible, the Bible is first and foremost about God. See, it's about what God is like before it even asks what we might do. Because God is the main character in the Bible. His example is the one that we're to emulate, much more so than the heroes of the faith. God, as seen in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one who shows us what we should do to live a life that's worthy of him, that pleases him in every way. I want to urge us to be a people who read the Bible consistently and constantly, not just reactively when we think we need a bit of help or a bit of direction, I want us to be people who read the Bible consistently and constantly so that instinctively we know what he's like and we know what he wants. Because we treat him as someone whose opinion we crave every day. He's not just that friend who rings you only when they're in need. That's how you get him. That's how you live a life worthy of him that pleases him in every way. Let me lead us in this great prayer. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.